0: Well, good morning. So uh, this was a big week for me. Um, I out U.S. Army Central and Fort Bragg in one week. Yes, and for those of you that don't know what outprocessing a military installation is like, this is the best way to describe it. An adult scavenger hunt. <laughs> You're given a set of clearing papers, They have signature blocks on them, and you drive all over the post and the Lord's creation looking for somebody that can sign the block. And to make it more fun, the person that you're looking for usually works a very rare, elusive shift, so you spend a lot of time waiting in a chair. Some of these people haven't been seen since the 90s, apparently. Um, But the good news about that is it gave me a lot of time to prepare for today. And I did learn that I breathe 12 times per minute, and I can sleep in a government-issued chair. So that's, uh, that's good. So today is a big day for us. As Andrew mentioned, we have the Lord's Supper, which is a wonderful time to remember what Jesus has done for us. It's a great time to come before the Lord in confession of sin and ask for forgiveness, as by receiving of the bread and the wine is symbolic of our reception of Jesus. And I love how Andrew always puts it serious but not somber. We should feel joy and thanksgiving. Also today, as he mentioned, we're moving into a new series uh, in our year of discipleship. For the past few weeks, we've been in a sub-series entitled Against All Odds, and we've explored the Israelites' movement into the Promised Land, led by Joshua. We've learned about the conquest in Jericho. We've seen firsthand from Samson the dangers on doing what we think is right versus what we know that God knows is right. we were reminded of the might and power of the God we serve in 1 Samuel 17, as David slays Goliath and how kindness matters in David's treatment of Mephibosheth. So in thinking of these past four weeks, it's easy to see why the series was entitled Against All Odds because what we saw were both individual and collective trials, but we also saw the power of our God at work. Today's new series is entitled Kings and Kingdoms, and it is about kings and kingdoms. We have David, Solomon, we have Jonah. I know he's not a king, but there is a kingdom message there. We have Israel and Judah, both the north and southern kingdoms. We'll look at the lessons of David, the wisdom of Solomon, and let Jonah teach us about second chances. I'd like to remind you to keep plugging away at the F260 plan we're in, because by doing so, I think you get the full effect of what we focus on each week. And if you haven't started that year yet, there's no time like the present to jump right in. So again, today we're going to be in Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. So the Psalms have several different authors. About half of them, about half of the 150, are attributed to David. They were written during the time span that the entire Old Testament was written. So from about 1400 B.C. all the way through 500 B.C., so just over... 900 years, and they cover everything from the origin of life all the way through the liberation of the Jews in Babylon. They can be divided into five sections, and really what they comprise is the hymn book for Israel. The Hebrew text uses the term praises, and rabbis over the years expanded to call that the book of praises, and not to exclude the Greek, the Greek word that Psalms is derived from means plucking or twanging of, string, of strings, so it makes sense then to refer to this as the hymnal for ancient Israel, poetry to be sung essentially, and it's beautiful, beautiful poetry, and C.S. Lewis reminds us That when we understand the type of literature we're looking at in our scripture, we're going to get more out of it. And so when he talks about the Psalms, he says this he says, They must be read as poems if they're to be understood. Otherwise, we shall miss what is in them and think we see what is not. And as for the substance of the Psalms, John Calvin says it this way I may truly call this book an anatomy of all parts of the soul, for no one can feel a movement of the spirit which is not reflected in this mirror. All the sorrows, troubles, fears, doubts, hopes, pains, perplexities, and stormy outbreaks by which the hearts of men are tossed have been depicted here to the very life. So let's move in to Psalms this morning with verses 1 through 2. He says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So this is pretty straightforward here. We have two choices, we have two types of people. First, we have the blessed man. But what about him? What about his traits? What are his traits? What are his actions? Well, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, for one. But what does that mean? Well, It means he doesn't seek the advice of the unbeliever in spiritual matters, in ethical matters, in moral matters. And there's times, obviously, where we will seek the counsel of the unbeliever. We can't get away from that in, in business and health care and finance and law. But what he gets at here is not on matters of the Spirit. What else? He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. And I recognize that we're all sinners, and I very much recognize what we're called to do in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. But what David is getting at here is what we all know to be true that we don't spend the bulk of our lives in the company of the unbeliever and the unrepentant. And when we come to verses like this that need interpretation, the best way to interpret scripture is by scripture. And in the New Testament, Paul speaks of this twice. In 1 Corinthians 15:33, he said, "Bad company Ruins good morals. And then again in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 7 verse 14 he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And this is the point that's being made here in this first verse of the Psalms. And finally it says he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. I like the term the King James Version uses here. They say scornful. It doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. And to define the word is this those who make what is good and holy the object of their ridicule. And how often do we see this? How often do we see this today? And I've said this before. But our world today will only accept us, will only accept our church if we're not too crazy. If we don't confine ourselves to a charitable organization and the boundaries that that entails. It ridicules what we believe. And here David is saying this. He is saying at some point, going through this progression, this is where you end up. You have become one of them. Your flame has been extinguished. You're among those who will not walk in the peace that only the living God can provide. You're among the scorned. And Chuck Smith sums it up perfectly when he says, First, a person begins quite often just walking in the counsel of the ungodly. The next thing he finds, he is standing around, in the congregation of sinners, and finally he is settled down and he is seated in the seat of the scornful. And this is exactly what the enemy wants, and this is his age-old tactic. We see this in all facets of life. It reminds me of that famous analogy of, of boiling a frog. The frog never hops out of the pot because the heat is turned up so slowly he never realizes he's being cooked until it's too late. Look at the story of the prodigal. The same progression is at play in the story of the prodigal. And this is refrained throughout Scripture time and time again. If we look at Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 through 21, he says, "'Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, "'who put darkness for light and light for darkness, "'who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. "'Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes.'" and shrewd in their own sight. John Bunyan in The Pilgrim's Progress sums it up this way. He says, What God says is best is best, though all men in the world are against it. So in studying for this sermon, um, I came across a study by Stanley Milgram, and some of you may remember him. He was a Yale University psychologist, and in, in the early 1960s, he conducted a study on whether people, whether regular people, not hardened criminals, whether regular people could be convinced to do harm to others based on influence from others, from just following orders. And it's interesting because as he was conducting this study, it coincided with the trial in Israel of Adolf Eichmann, the former SS colonel who had just so happened to be using this concept as his defense to avoid the hangman. It didn't work. Spoiler alert. But if you've ever seen the movie Operation Finale, it's a very interesting movie where the Israeli spies actually go to Argentina. They kidnap him and bring him back 20 years post-Holocaust to stand trial. And, um, but, but this is the defense that he was using. But going back to Milgram's study, here's what he, fi- he found. It states, in particular, acting under orders causes participants to perceive a distance from outcomes that they themselves caused. And when under that influence and order of others, they view their actions more as passive movements rather than voluntary actions. This is the progression. This is the progression that David is talking about here. And so as we move to verse 2, we read that his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So what do we know? We know that the blessed man uses the Lord as his guide. Edwin Cohn last year here preached a sermon on this, and his analogy was a pilot using his instrument panel being a former pilot he uh, he could rel- relate to this i know we have another former pilot or current pilot here but i'm um, not only using his instrument pilot but or, i'm sorry not only using his instrument panel but trusting his instrument panel and that is the very concept that we read here the blessed man uses the word of god as his guide and he trusts it and he follows it and he meditates on it and by meditate, he fills himself with the Lord through his word. And this is the difference between meditation here and traditional Eastern meditation. Those religions and those cultures have a view and a goal of emptying oneself as the primary result of meditation. Completely clearing one's head and heart from anything to, to achieve a sort of equilibrium with one's surroundings. We as Christians, when we meditate, we seek not to empty but to fill and to saturate ourselves with what is good and what is holy. And to do so, we immerse ourselves in His Word. And this is also something that we're commanded to do. In Romans 10, 17, Paul tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Charles Spurgeon says this, he says, Man must have some delight, some supreme pleasure. His heart was never meant to be a vacuum. If not filled with the best things, it will be filled with the unworthy and disappointing. And and speaking of Spurgeon, as we move to verses 3 through 6, he goes on to remind us that the intent of the psalmist, the intent of David here, is, is to remind us of the path of the blessed man and to warn us of the destruction of the sinner, of the unrepentant sinner. So let's read verses 3 through 6. It says, He is planted like a tree by streams of water that yield its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So in the first two verses, we see the choices of man, and now we move to the consequences. And what we have is we have the believer and the unbeliever in conflict here, and the author makes a clear distinction between these two but I I believe we're smart enough to figure out the distinction but what we do need is the traits because as we know the enemy is a crafty one and will not miss an opportunity to occupy that gray area and eventually lead us astray and that's what David is doing here for us so we cannot blow past this section so the blessed man is like a tree planted a tree that has roots and the more nourishment it receives, the stronger the roots become. It's not easily swayed by changing conditions. It's not easily swayed by changing weather because it's planted. And being planted and nourished, it prospers and it bears fruit. And let me be clear here, by prosper, I am not referring to the prosperity gospel or any sort of prosperity gospel because we know that as believers, We will have trials. We're told that we will have trials. Some of you have had many, and some of you are in them right now. And I think many of us have been in seasons at times of suffering, and many of us are suffering now. And don't think that God does not know your suffering, that he doesn't feel it. That he doesn't feel your grief and your depression and your anxiety, because he does, he feels it, and church, he does not delight in it, because he felt them all too. He grieved, he suffered, he worried, and he was tried. And if you ask me why you suffer today, I don't know. I don't know, but I do know two things. I know that he knows how it feels, and he does not cause or delight in the suffering of his children. And so what we mean by prosper here is that we will turn to God and praise him in our hearts, in our actions, during and in spite of the darkness of times, during and in spite of present circumstances. Even when we can't find hope. And even when we feel so very far Away from God, because our faith, like this tree, has to be planted. In contrast, the wicked are compared to chaff, easily moved, the exact opposite of a planted tree. Chaff is an outer shell meant to be discarded and easily blown away by the wind. I think we have a picture of the winnowing. So, this is the winnowing process. And what that means is the separation of the chaff from the grain. And you see in this picture that the chaff is so light, even the slightest of breezes carries it away while the grain falls to the earth. Even a light wind carries it. It bears no fruit. It has no value. And in the end, like the soul of the wicked, it will be discarded. We also see here that the wicked will not stand in the judgment not in, nor in the congregation of the righteous. And this is doubled this way for a reason. This is making two points. This is like seeing truly, truly in the New Testament. It's doubled lyrically as parallelism in poetry, but this doubling magnifies what the end result for the sinner will be. Condemnation and separation. Condemned for the sins of the world and separated from the love of Christ. And this is awful. Church, this is awful, but this is what the unbeliever and the unrepentant want. This is what they want. They want to have it their way. They believe their way is better. And in the end, God gives them what they want. And they get it their way. Because he knows. It says he, he knows the ways of the righteous. There's no hiding anything from him. It's right To desire justice in this world. There's nothing wrong with that, but we do not have to carry the burden of it when it's not served because it was never ever meant for us to carry because it is all-consuming and it's too heavy. And how many times do we see this on the news? Some poor family waiting for decades for justice for a loved one And you hear their stories and they're heartbreaking, but they've been all consumed by it. Consumed for years and years because it's too heavy. One of the darkest times in this state was the horrific shooting at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston. Wanting to start a race war, Dylan Roof walked into the church as they conducted a Bible study. He attended it and at the end he shot and killed all but one. And there are no words to describe the evil at work here. The Reverend Daniel Simmons was one of the church members killed by Ruth. And in a testament to his faith, the response from his children was unbelievable. From his daughter, she said, I love my father. I was just like him. And I'm going to miss him. And I'm going to miss getting to know him all over again in my adult life. But I don't grieve so much for my father because I know he and his eight precious eternal comrades, they are at this very moment experiencing the greatest peace, and that's a peace not found here on this earth. And his son, his son in the courtroom looked at Ruth and said, I forgive you. I know you don't understand that, but God requires me to forgive you. I forgive you. He also requires me to plead and pray for you, and I do that. Understand that as you have been judged, know that you have an opportunity to ask for forgiveness. Know that you can change your life. Stay focused. I guarantee if you choose to serve him, you will have a better life. We serve one whose burden is light. We serve one who is perfectly just, and we serve one that will return to make all things right. The wicked and the unbelievers, as we see here, will be punished from the most common man to the highest leader. All will be punished, and that is why, church, we pray for these people. We pray for all of them because God loves all of them. And think about that for a second he loves all of them. Jesus did not go to the cross for a select few. He went to the cross for all because he loved the world. He loved the world. He, not the few, not the elite, not the powerful, not the religious, but he loved the world. In church, he went to the cross as much for Mother Teresa and Billy Graham as he did for Dylan Roof. And he loves them all. And that is why we do what we do as a church. This is why we study and we commit his word to our hearts so that when the time comes, we can leave the 99 and go for the one. That we can leave the 99 for the one because they are loved by him. Richard Baker sums this up this way. He said the whole psalm offers itself to be drawn into these two opposite propositions a godly man is blessed and a wicked man is miserable, which seem to stand as two challenges made by the prophet. One, that he'll maintain a godly man against all comers, to be the only Jason for winning the golden fleece of blessedness. The other, that albeit the ungodly make a show in the world of being happy, they, of all men, are most miserable. And think of walking through this world of the belief that there is nothing more, that that this is it, and how miserable that must be. Everything in this world, everything here is temporary, and the reason that the world constantly looks for something to make it happy is because this very need, this desire for peace and contentment has been placed there by our Creator but there was only one thing ever designed to fill it, and that is the peace and contentment that comes with a life in Jesus Christ. And if you've never done this, if you've never put your faith in him, if you've never asked him to forgive you and be the leader of your life, what are you waiting for? You can ask question after question, but at some point a decision has to be made. If you're able to get every single question you have answered, then at some point it's not faith. And I am certainly not advocating blind faith. I believe God gave us our minds to be used to learn about him. And I think we have a responsibility to learn about him and to read his word so we can grow for our love for him and make disciples. But at some point a decision has to be made. C.S. Lewis, speaking of those who defend the faith, wittily remarked in a book about the the Psalms, he said, A man can't always be defending the truth. There must be a time to feed on it. And the world wants you to think that it and only it is it. That there's nothing more. Live your best life. You only live once. You know, they may agree that Jesus was a good person and a good teacher and a good moral man. But don't fall into that trap. Don't be part of this progression because a good moral man doesn't claim to be God. A good moral teacher doesn't claim to raise people from the dead or to cast out demons or to sit at the right hand of God the Father. To paraphrase Lewis's quote, you can call him a lunatic, you can call him a demon, or he can fall at his feet and call him the son of the living God. The one and only one who can save you, who has provided for you the final sacrifice. The one who was prophesied 5,000 years before his birth. And then again, 3,000 years before his birth. And 2,000 and 1,000 and 800 years. Messianic prophecy after prophecy. And he is the one that will return and will make everything right. So if you don't know him, and you have questions about what faith like this is like, please ask. Andrew's over here at Next Steps at the end of every service, but just ask. If you've recently accepted him, and now you don't know what you're supposed to do next, please reach out, because we would love nothing more than to talk with you. So as we close today, know that you are loved, that you are loved so very much by your Creator that he sent his son for you personally so that you may have a relationship with him and live with him eternally. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this church, and Father, thank you for all that are gathered here today. Father, we ask that you help us grow in our faith as we learn your word and as we commit your word to our hearts. And during this year of discipleship, We want to come to know you better, Father, so that we can love you better. Father, let the love of your word change our hearts and soften our hearts and be with those here who suffer. All of us here that suffer, Father, we know that you suffered as well. Our world is crazy. A lot of things are going on now that we don't understand. But during these times of confusion, we ask that you help us to remember what we do know, and that is you in your word, and we ask that you help us focus on that. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our salvation through him. We pray in his name, amen.